Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians and academics. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. Anastasia Makarieva is a Russian theoretical physicist who has spent her career trying to understand how life on this planet works together to sustain itself. In the past 10 years, Anastasia's focus has been more particularly on forests and her work, which has been described as controversial, proves that forests are a key part in the management of water system regulation all around the world. What does that mean? Well, it means, Anastasia says, that forests are the most important thing that we have to protect at this stage of the climate crisis. Her work is phenomenally interesting. It was a little bit difficult for me to wrap my head around some of these points, but she's extremely patient in explaining everything to a layman like myself. She explains the difference between pristine ecosystems, untouched ecosystems, and destabilized or disturbed ecosystems. And she goes on to suggest that there is a reason that the public response to the climate crisis is focused on carbon, that it may just be a big distraction from the real problems that we could solve tomorrow, which are managed by some of the most dangerous industries on this planet. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. I've never had a theoretical physicist on the podcast before and probably not really had a conversation with a theoretical physicist for years, maybe since university. I'm so fascinated by what you're doing because you're approaching the forest, essentially, and uh, climate conservation. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of biotic regulation, uh, could you give the listeners some background on yourself and your work? Uh, yes. So I graduated from the Faculty of Physics and Mechanics in Leningrad Polytechnical Institute. And... Um, there I met my teacher and professor Viktor Goshkov, with whom I then worked for many years till he died in 2019. And I, all this time since 1996, I have been working in the theoretical physics division of Petersburg Nuclear Physics Institute. And there uh, Viktor uh, founded this research direction physical and biological basis of life stability. So it is not a very usual, you know, uh, field of research for theoretical physicists. Of, of life stability. Of life stability, physical and biological basis of life stability. Actually, uh, Victor was a unique uh, personality because he was doing uh, theoretical physics research at a very high level, uh, which Soviet physics was characterized by them. But at the same time, he has always been interested in uh, wild nature. So I have never met a man or a person who would be so appreciative of this complexity, of this beauty, so deeply moved. And he traveled a lot across Ru uh, Russians, former Soviet Union, 
and really spent a lot of time in the forest, uh, in pristine forest. At a certain point of time, all this somehow connected in him, physics and his love for nature, and he changed his direction radically and began to study the interaction between life and environment. And he came with up with this biotic regulation concept. It is really complex. Uh, so he was lecturing in Polytechnical Institute where I was a student, but as he was telling me later, it was difficult to find a student who would join such a topic because it is very wide, very mm. with very diverse ramifications. And so, but somehow we found each other and could work together. So I consider myself uh, to be his pupil, trying to continue what he was doing. It's time for you to find a student now, then. Yes, it is. But you know, Victor could offer me some <laughs> financial stability. Mm. It was now our research is so controversial. My colleagues and I, we have been hesitating to take students because what can we offer them? Like, you know, a world full of rejections and criticism. So, so we have, we do have an international group, but if you look at our courses, they are all mature, established scientists. All right, let's get into then mm -hmm. uh, the theory of biotic regulation. Mm -hmm. And then I would love to understand more as well why it's so controversial mm -hmm. uh, in academia. So let's start with that. I mean, you know, I was about to say <laughs> elevator pitch, but that's a very stupid thing to say to a physicist. Um, what is it exactly that you're studying and what is it that you have found? We know that life has existed for almost 4 billion years on Earth. And how it could be that all this time the conditions were uh, suitable for life. So how can it... Mm. This is... This is uh, the question, and there are two answers to this question. One answer is the life, that life adapts. So conditions change randomly and life changes also. And, uh, but uh, this um, is not satisfactory because uh, the characteristic times uh, if you look at characteristic times of possible changes of the environment, they are much shorter than the characteristic time of genetic change, which is uh, like several million years, the duration of species exists. So they don't match. And the, for example, the global biota could self-destroy uh, in just 10 years. It has a, st uh, a store of about 1,000 gigatons carbon, which it can decompose at the rate of 100 uh, gigatons per year. So the turnover time and the possible time of the environment coming to an unsuitable for life state, it's very short. So the alternative answer is that life has been keeping this environment in a state suitable for itself. Basically, the biotic regulation started from pointing out this mismatch between the timescales of genetic adaptation and characteristic change of the environment, which could occur. Scale is very important. So a number, when you can find the Q 
key magnitude that determines the problem. What gives you the response to how much of the problem? So the number, the number. Science is quantity. So we need to find the scales. And these scales, if you like, they don't match. So just to um, give an example, yeah, would that be like uh, we're talking about the fact that genetic evolution yeah. takes uh, millions of years for a small thing to change in a species. It will take yeah. such, such, such a long time. And yet uh, the environment can adapt quite rapidly and change. Uh, yes. How is the environmental homeostasis maintained? We have very strong fluxes balancing very accurately each other. There is synthesis and decomposition. So plants synthesize at a huge rate of 100 gigatons carbon per year. And all other organisms, bacteria and fungi, decompose it, eat it up. So any imbalance, even very small, in these huge fluxes could totally unbalance the environment on Earth very quickly. But this doesn't happen. Moreover, this environment remains stable with respect to abiotic influences because we know that, for example, there are emissions from the Earth's core continuously and they don't accumulate in the environment. For example, you have a bakery and somebody is making pies and other people are eating them up. And so... How can you sustain <laughs> a certain amount of pies? If, if there is imbalance, so they suddenly disappear and there is nothing. What did you say about emissions coming from the Earth's core, like uh, green, greenhouse gas or carbon? Yes, like when we are talking about uh, volcanoes uh, emissions. So uh, yeah. when we look at the geological scale of up to 600 million years, the Fanerozoid, so the amount of these cumulative emissions is really huge. We can see that approximately the same amount of organic carbon has been deposited by the biota in sediments. So apparently mm -hmm. there was a reaction mm -hmm. of the biota, and this is what uh, we are also seeing now that the biota reacts to the, our CO2 emissions. They are also perceived as a disturbance. And so we have this biotic response, which removes uh, about one third of our emissions. Oh my God. <laughs> um, define, define biota quickly. Is that like all life uh, on Earth? Well, yes. We, we could uh, when we say biota, it is all life on Earth. Uh, but... Uh, Basically, the biotic regulation distinguishes between natural biota and, you know, biota disturbed beyond the threshold, like, you know, healthy organism and ill, because only natural biota can stabilize itself. Only a healthy person can perform work, yeah. meaningful work, you see? Yeah. So there is this difference. The biota is so powerful that when you introduce disturbances into it, it becomes unbalanced and it adds to the environmental perturbation. Like we know, when we disturb an ecosystem, like slash and burn agriculture, there is soil erosion, which mm. adds chemicals to the environment. When we disturb beyond the threshold, it doesn't compensate, but adds to the disturbance. 
but then uh, in what way does the biota compensate? Because you said that it, the biota can distinguish, sorry if I've misunderstood, but it can distinguish between um, emissions that are in balance and then these man-made emissions that are causing an imbalance and it's trying to consume a third of our emissions. Imagine that we stand on this position, that life is organized in such a manner as to stabilize its environment, right? Let us try to uh, check, to, to test this proposition. What we could do? Carbon is the main component of all uh, life. So imagine that we would make such a global experiment. Let us disturb the carbon uh, concentration globally and see, will the biota react? If it does regulate the environment, it should try to stabilize this disturbance to eliminate it, right? If it doesn't react, so uh, we won't see any response. And actually, with this fossil fuel burning, we have this global experiment. Yeah. We are testing the ability of the biota to respond to the perturbation. And it does respond. We have just disturbed so much that it is not already able to completely negate our pollution, carbon pollution. But if we disturbed it less than, than we did, it could totally uh, cope with it. I want to tell you, it is a very complex question in theoretical biology and ecology because this response couldn't be predicted. And uh, uh, people uh, were forced to accept that the biota reacts in this manner only when they calculated and measured it. Because the conventional paradigm, biota adapts and all that, didn't, didn't predict it. But the biotic regulation did. And what the conventional paradigm says, ecosystems are limited by some limited nutrients like phosphorus or nitrogen. So why should it respond to carbon, which is not limiting? But Victor said, and he published it, when carbon is disturbed, the concentration of carbon is disturbed, then the biota will synthesize compounds that do not contain phosphorus or nitrogen, but only will respond only to carbon. And this is what is going on. So it is a very, very uh, expensive global experiment which shows the power of the biota and which is underappreciated in the current ecological theory because no lessons were learned. You see, in 2010 or 11, uh, they had to admit this missing thing uh, that it is indeed terrestrial biota, but there were no reconsiderations in the literature that the, the theory couldn't predict this response. Right. So the conventional paradigm was that no matter what extra force or extra thing is introduced to the to the biota, to the biological world, life will adapt. Life will find a way. It will just deal with whatever is happening. Whereas what we've seen is that we have disturbed the balance so much that the destruction has actually become exponential. Mm -hmm. That life is now destroying itself because it, because the the global system is so out of balance. No, 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 no. Life is not destroying itself. No, no, quite the contrary. You see, <laughs> <laughs> we are. Uh, you see, we are adding carbon to the atmosphere, right? Mm -hmm. Life 
perceives it as a disturbance. What mm. it can do? It can try to remove it. And so those forests, oh, we do have forests that are still relatively intact. They remove this carbon and bury it in uh, organic matter. So mm. they do continue to work for the common good for the climate. They continue. Mm. But those ecosystems that are destroyed uh, already, beyond the limit, they cannot do that. And they continue to destroy, to self-destroy. So right. this is like this dichotomy, which mm. is often not recognized, but which is crucial, crucial. The biosphere is divided between natural ecosystems that work for stability and disturbed ecosystems that cannot do that work. Oh, okay. So we've affected certain places so much. Mm -hmm. That the the systems there are completely thrown out of whack, thrown out of balance, and therefore cannot perform their function. Um, and will maybe never be able to perform their function unless they're re, re reforested. Or mm -hmm. okay, and that's why we can see on one side of the world, you know, one of the few intact forests that there are. It's still performing its duty. It's still sucking out carbon. It's still providing a, an ecosystem mm -hmm. from a huge amount of biodiversity. But then somewhere else where a lot of the trees are cut down, forest fires, for example, exponentially um, develop because there's not enough moisture in the air being released by the canopies and the temperature mm -hmm. rises. And Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Understood. Wow. Let me tell you about these fires because yeah. this is also some uh, misunderstandings here. A lot of, for example, Siberian fires, which made the news, uh, global news. They often uh, contributed to global warming. Like you see, it is warmer, so the fire is more probable. But when you look closer, a lot of fires follow previous disturbances, like cuttings. Logging. You disturb the local water regime, so yeah. it becomes drier, and then fires come. So it is not like, you know, you have intact forests, there is some global warming, and they begin to burn. We have... Hmm. Uh, Colleagues working in uh, undisturbed forests, which didn't burn for more than 2,500 uh, years. And it is not because they are in some particular place, because disturbed forests nearby do burn. This is because when you don't disturb the forest beyond the threshold, it is able to regulate its own humidity regime. So... When we speak about fires and global warming link, it is very convenient to forest practitioners who cut forests to make this link, attribute everything to global warming because it is nobody's responsibility. I suppose geopolitically then you're, you kind of get into a, a horrible stage where the excuse then becomes, oh, we need to cut down the forest to prevent these forest fires. If people attribute it to what you're saying, that it's just global warming rather than understanding that it's also the, the water regulation and the, the self-regulation of an intact forest. Mm -hmm. What I want to bring up is that there are boreal forests in Russia, intact, relatively intact, that are not considered as precious ecosystems and not part of uh, international discussion. We mm -hmm. hear about the Amazon and even Congo and others, but not about boreal forests, and they are very important. And mm -hmm. so, for example, there is an intact forest, then there comes a 
company which cuts it, right? Mm-hmm. Then it burns next year because the water cycle was disturbed. And then people say, oh, it is natural process fire. No, it is not natural because there wouldn't be any fire without previous cutting. And so, and if you say it is natural process, which is accelerated by global warming, but in reality, it is you who did it with your cutting. So global warming, it is kind of our joint responsibility, right? But if it is due to cutting this fire, then it is the responsibility of those who destroy this forest. Absolutely. Yeah. I cover deforestation a lot, particularly in uh, Malaysia, and then more recently in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. The environmental disturbances that come from cutting down trees is phenomenal. So flooding has increased dramatically in the logged areas. What does that mean? It means, for example, in the state of Sarawak this year, there's been, uh, in the spring, there were four major floods that washed away whole villages, whole towns, bridges even. And why is that? It's because the state has been logged. So there's no roots, there's no soil, there's no trees to stop that water collecting and to suck it up and to do whatever it is that water performs as part of that ecosystem, as part of that wider ecosystem. And of course, geopolitically over there, the solutions proposed are bridges or um, dams or, you know, all of these terrible things, not we need to reforest. Well, the activists know that, the indigenous populations know that, but the politicians who are making millions from cutting it down obviously refuse to acknowledge that. Why is this theory controversial? Uh, No, you you know that the biotech regulation of the environment uh, is like an umbrella concept for all our research. But more recently, we developed the biotic pump concept. When you have a big forest on land, it drives its own moisture transport from the ocean. So if you remove a forest, the continent will get substantially drier and the water cycle will destabilize. And this is what has been perceived as controversial because of of the different physical mechanisms that are considered as the major process responsible for atmospheric moisture transport. In short, the key mechanism is the temperature gradient. So the air rises when it is warmer, and so there is inflow, horizontal inflow towards this area. And this is how the atmosphere circulates. While we propose that when there is forest, it keeps the atmosphere moist. And when there is condensation above this forest, water vapor disappears. And so the pressure drops and this pressure gradient is what drives moisture towards the forest. So a different, not temperature, but uh, condensation of water vapor. It is being still considered as uh, controversial, even though the situation is changing, and so we are publishing gradually. You need to publish in the peer-reviewed literature, otherwise you are not a scientist. So, mm. <laughs> and the the fact that we have somehow survived the, with the biotic pump topic is also remarkable by itself. So I don't know how much you want to go into details. 
Yeah, I would. Uh, this was what Ugo spoke to me about when he said I should interview you, the biotic pump and just how fascinating a concept it is. So it would also be equally interesting to uh, understand uh, why it's controversial, because if you say that, you know, the current paradigm is it's about temperature changes and then uh, you and your colleagues are working on the changes in water condensation as a layman um, who's not a scientist. That doesn't sound, why would one thing be controversial when the original isn't? Because they make different predictions concerning the importance of the force. In our concept, the force is crucially important for atmospheric moisture transport. In the conventional mm. paradigm, it isn't. So, for example, uh, we say that there should be a forest for normal moisture import. But the conventional paradigm, if the continent is warmer than the ocean, there will be air motion. But let me tell you, for example, before I was talking to you, I was giving a talk here in Technical University of Munich on forests, water, and climate, recent advances, research pending questions, and policy implications. So I was just talking about most recent research in this area. And for example, I can tell you about the Amazon forest. The Amazon rainforest is unique in that the wet season there happens two months in advance of how it happens elsewhere in the world. So we have this migrating zone of high precipitation, which circles around the globe, at which migrates seasonally. And where it comes, there is wet season. But in the Amazon rainforest, this happens two months earlier. So it is still somewhere else, but it is already rainy season. People began to investigate how is it so. And now it is clear that in the end of the dry season, the forest begins to transpire, to, to photosynthesize. It is dry season, but everything flushes with leaves. And this transpiration enriches the atmosphere with water vapor. And this switches off the convection and the moisture import from the ocean. So this is precisely illustrates the role how the forest switches on large-scale atmospheric motions, which deliver water to it. Wow. This is what the biotic pump concept, which was formulated in 2007, is about, how the forest delivers moisture for itself. And in 2017, other people came to the same conclusion. They thought the explanation is different, but it doesn't matter. So the fact is there. The forest is operational uh, in terms of switching on it, the moisture transport. I, I, have, I have so much to say and so much to ask you. What's coming to mind is actually the nonsense about free markets um, self-regulating. Because, I mean, was the belief before that um, forests exist in a place purely because there is rain as if everything mm -hmm. is you know a kind of accidental step of darwinian mm -hmm. evolution rather than an ecosystem mm -hmm. and how can that be possible when we 
scientists have been studying for decades um, micro ecosystems mm -hmm. so how many living things work together on a forest floor or in that particular part of i i i don't know sewers in cities even we know don't we that everything kind of works in tandem with the things around it to get what it mm -hmm. needs mm -hmm. so why when you blow that up on a planetary scale why is that so controversial to, as somebody who's not a scientist it and you know maybe a bit of a romantic about how the world works that that seems right well you know it is indeed controversial in our specific field but i wouldn't um, uh you know i suffer a lot from this controversy like professionally because i have uh, to spend a lot of resources of time on this which i could spend more productively but yeah. you know i'm I got used to think about this like this. Now there is this paradigm shift ongoing. When we understand that uh, we cannot destroy the biosphere alone. And so we are all bringing some piece of knowledge to this paradigm shift. And like, you know, ants, when they are bringing something to their anthill, I observed them a lot of my time. I spent a lot of time in forest, a total of 60 months, as I calculated. Wow. So, and imagine this aunt, he finds something, what he thinks is precious, and takes it to the end hill. And probably when he brings it there, there is an emotional reaction that he's satisfied, right? He did something. So it is like um, an emotional pain that he receives. But on his work, on his way, often these things is, is taken from him and other aunt goes there. <laughs> and this one uh, remains without this pain. And this happens all the time, but still the ant heal functions. So <laughs> I'm thinking of myself like this ant that probably with my <laughs> knowledge <laughs> making, and I won't make it to the ant heal, but somebody else will and will get paid but not me but if we look at us all like a civilization like something uh which is meaningful this is how we humans come to the truth it is very painful very unfair process like with ants but i hope that anyway we are moving in the right direction that is why i now think that i will just publish <laughs> what is not yet uh, copyrighted. So let it all go there, these ideas, and we will all move together somewhere in the right direction. That is to your question about this controversy. Well, this is how science works. There are mm. old concepts, new concepts, they fight, but somehow we are moving towards the truth. So I would better concentrate on uh, interesting questions, like with this Amazon rainforest. You see, when we, in 2010, we related this concept, it was a huge emotional blow. It was very, uh, very strong feeling. Like somehow you realized what a powerful creature is a tree. Like, you know, the master of the universe, that they can govern atmospheric flows around the earth, being somewhere there. They, they have this power. So we have always kept 
trees in high regard. But at this point, it was like, you know, like something you saw, like a new dimension. So it was very powerful. Uh, but we couldn't imagine that it will be confirmed, like uh, mm. measurements. At that point, it was just a new proposition. And the more we study, the more evidence we find from different uh, directions what in your research changes the question about how to confront the climate crisis what knowledge do you have that you think should be used to answer the question of what what do we do about climate change you see what we have now is climate change right how did we get here we had two processes we have carbon emissions right and we have been destroying the ecosystem. It is the same exponent. If you look at how native ecosystems were replaced by secondary, by exploited ecosystems. So now we are attributing most of this climate destabilization to carbon. But this other process is equally powerful. And from the biotic regulation viewpoint, it is the key process, the key. And it continues. So we could immediately reduce the risks of ongoing climate destabilization if we stop exploiting natural forests now. Just stop. Just doing nothing but stopping this. Because this is ongoing tendency. And this is what, even if we don't discuss carbon at this time, but just due to this, we are having uh, more and more destabilization, heat waves and water cycle disruptions like floods and droughts. This is all about losing natural ecosystems. This should be the top priority measure because it is also more realistic because all our civilization has a technological inertia. We are now uh, built on oil. And we cannot change it tomorrow, you see? Mm -hmm. All economy is tuned to this. This will take time, but forest destruction plays a much lesser role in this, say, energy budget. Economically, it is much more feasible to stop this, especially when it doesn't compete with agriculture, like boreal forests. There is no agriculture there. It it is just cutting, just Mm -hmm. cutting and then burning. Stop this and the situation will immediately stop deteriorating further. Just stop it. Just Mm. work with Russia. Let us make some order in this chaos. Right now, it is just being destroyed. You see, now they have cut everything they could easily reach. And now the government is subsidizing indirectly that they go further and further. Because, uh, so, like people are encouraged, go and destroy as far as you can. <laughs> you think, and you think that this is going on on one-fifth of global land, and it doesn't matter for the water cycle. For the yeah. it doesn't matter. No, it matters a lot. We need an international effort urgently Mm -hmm. about boreal forests. 
in Canada also. <laughs> you see, and the IPCC now is considering it as a useless form because it doesn't matter for carbon because if you destroy all these forests, there will be, you know, in winter there will be bare white snow. It will reflect a lot of sunlight and the planet will cool. Yeah. <laughs> you see, what a solution. Uh, great solution. We don't oh need them. God. And yeah. this is based on models which don't even know how to take into account clouds properly. But they are issuing this like mm -hmm. recommendations for policymakers. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me, this is the cheapest and most effective solution to stop further deterioration of climate, which is destabilizing. Just stop destroying boreal forests. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Tropical forest is a treasure of treasures. Must be protected. I would do anything also. But they are at least being discussed, right? Boreal forests are being destroyed. Nobody says yeah. a word. So yeah. this must be elevated very highly in international agenda. Yeah. Isn't it the the biggest or at least one of the world's biggest forests is actually in Siberia? Yes. In the Russia, yes. This boreal forest belt, 7,000 kilometers long. Yeah. You see, yeah. all the continents, all the continents, the Chinese, <laughs> uh, very clever people, they uh, stop deforestation there all country, trying to have forest, and they are cutting a forest in Russia. But yeah, yeah. clever. I mean, <laughs> but they are disrupting their own moisture flow, mm. which benefits all the continent. So yeah. this is this is our common treasure also in Europe. And yeah. So this should be urgently, urgently. This is what I'm saying. We are saying here in Munich, trying to raise this voice in Germany, who is a leader, international climate leader on climate issues. And this is what is not being properly taken into account. Yeah. I can't speak for um, all logging companies in the world, but certainly those that we investigate, um, Sam Ling and Rimbanan Hijau are uh, two of the biggest ones in the world. They're Malaysian. They're um, some of the biggest culprits right now in Siberia and Russia, cutting down all of those trees. And the unfortunate thing about these companies is um, that if you explain, hey, you shouldn't do this um, because it's not nice. <laughs> it's not good to destroy life on that scale. <laughs> but if that doesn't, isn't enough to get you, then you, know, you should know that this is actually going to affect um, the water and condensation, the mm -hmm. water regulation in your own country. They don't care. They don't care because they don't even care about their own people. They don't even care about how they've destroyed their own countries. These people genuinely seem to believe that they're going to be able to build palaces behind walls and have microclimates where they will be safe forever. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's going to no, take. No, I, I think it is very simple because every person should be traced to their, you know, social group. So what are these people? Where are these people come from? Who are their reference group? Mm. So, in many cases, they are very, very primitive aspirations. So it is mm -hmm. not, it is not surprising what you are saying. So I, I think that uh, 
there should be really an international effort just to stop it. Just stop yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting because something that I've learned from interviewing um your colleagues, um, you know, economists and um, biophysical economists and all this and climate system scientists is they all say one thing that we can't do tomorrow is stop the use of fossil fuels. We cannot do that. Overnight. Of course we can't. But this is the point, you know, I, you know, if you look at what the public is demanding, you know, st stop the use of fossil fuels. Like the one chance that we have is the one that we simply cannot do, the one that would be equally as destructive to people. And whereas one thing that we could do overnight would be to stop deforestation. Mm -hmm. Shut them all down everybody will only benefit because the people who live in forests actually the majority of people that still live near forests and depend on forests they will also benefit from not having their land taken away from them and their trees cut down so it seems to be that that that's maybe the chant that we should all be, be but you know, let me tell you uh yes uh, you know i'm not kind of investigating this but what you are saying uh must be have an explanation. Why are people demanding what cannot be done? You see mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is because this uh, <clears throat> actually there is this. Uh, I'm not denying the science behind uh, carbon and uh, this is uh, sure CO2 is a greenhouse gas and it can cause some warming. This is uh, out of question. But with this idea of CO2 warming, there are many uh, efforts who joined, and these are efforts not about climate, but about imposing, uh, you know, payments to make the, the energy less expensive for the consumers and uh, simplifying that Russia sells oil for a cheaper price, you see, uh -huh. because, because now major uh, factories are outside the territory of major energy producers. And so this is this economic uh, factor, which is very strong, and I think it is behind this propaganda. That is why all people are like coded about fossil fuels. But I'm not against Russia paying some, you know, cl climate tax. No. And receiving less for oil. But this interferes a lot with the real issues they don't allow anything to uh, penetrate into the discourse like the forests are excluded mm. you see they they want so much the public to remain focused on carbon that they don't allow it uh, so i think probably this climate agenda was just hijacked i don't know but isn't it uh, you know strange at least that People are demanding what cannot be done. Are they all ideas or what? Apparently, there is propaganda. Well, I mean, hey, if you have a source on that, <laughs> if you know somebody who's been contacted by somebody or told something, then because I mean, it must be, it must be in every single kind of uh, stage of human history when we've been close to some sort of revolution or big systematic change, propaganda has existed. There have been literally spies. People infiltrate. People try and direct the movement. Um, I haven't found any yet. I haven't found any proof of it yet. But I'm starting to believe more and more and more that 
fossil fuels becoming the center of the debate is very strange. It is strange, yes. I am I'm open to all uh, actually possibilities, but tell me, <laughs> there must be an explanation, yes? Okay, I'm not saying, I'm not a conspirational theory, yeah. no. I'm ready to accept any explanation, but give me at least something. <laughs> How can it be that people are so, you know, coded now in Germany? They are prepared to, to freeze. So I don't know. I know it's the same. It's the same with um, plastic. This was the first thing that opened my mind to how much misinformation is out in the world. Mm. The fact that plastic is actually the most efficient material that we have. And re- recyclable plastics are pretty much, you know, a blessing from uh, science. Um, that plastic is only 5% of our annual fossil fuel use. Um, that it's one of the only materials that can be used over and over and over and over again with very minimum material degradation as long as it's recyclable, et cetera, et cetera. And I was, it's because I have a, a friend, he was in the paper industry and he was just so disgusted by um, how energy inefficient the paper industry is and what the, it does to the forest that he went into st- uh, stone paper. And he told me essentially about, you know, the lobbying company that was set up by the timber, paper, pulp, mill, like the whole industry got together and said, right, we need to do something because plastic is kind of taking over. You know, it's becoming the material and, and we, we're going to lose our, our profit margins. And so paper went from being something that you conserve and that you don't waste, certainly when I was a child in the 90s, to now being seen as like the green material when it is completely inefficient. It uses, you need water to make paper, let alone the fact that you need to cut down forests. I cannot, I cannot read. You (laughs) take a tetra pack and it says, it is renewable energy from a renewable wood. Renewable yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, no. It's crazy. It's such crazy. hypocrisy of a global scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But people, but it's. I mean, it's understandable because if people think about a tree, you know, you cut down a tree, and then people think you can you can plant another tree, and it's a renewable source. People generally don't, and I didn't understand until I started looking into this, that there's nutrients in soil and those nutrients deplete and you cannot just cut and plant and cut and plant and cut and plant like it's not a renewable source. But because you can maybe do it that one time, whereas oil's finite, we know that. So, I mean, we have to have sympathy, like people are being deliberately thrown misinformation by really dangerous industries. Like people think fossil fuel, like, you know, oil and gas is bad. They're terrible. Don't get me wrong. But like, the loggers, the timber mafia. I had a Papua New Guinean politician on the show a couple of weeks ago. He calls them cartels. Mm-hmm. You know, they have enslaved his people. They have stolen their land. They are cutting down their forests. They've deliberately kept a population undereducated just to have access to their forests. They're evil. Evil, yeah. So maybe that's what I think it's really interesting that Fossil fuel has become the center of the... I mean, yes, it is the biggest emissions of carbon, but why is it always carbon as well? Why are we not talking about water? Mm-hmm. You know, Kamala Harris, like six months ago, said... She said, everybody's talking about oil, but let me tell you, in the future, wars will be fought over water. VP said that six months ago. Nobody's really done anything about it. We're running out of water. Our water uh, regulation systems are completely out of whack. 
um, let alone mankind facing drought. Like there's, I saw something in, I cannot remember where, which is awful, I know, but somewhere in the continent of Africa, they're in their fourth consecutive drought. So that's four years without rainfall. Everyone, everything is dying. You know, it's not just about carbon and heating. It is literally about the fact that the globe's ecosystem is falling apart and fossil fuel is not the, the problem fossil fuel is not the root cause of that because warming is not the root cause of that mm-hmm. it is the fact that we've gone in and we've destabilized those we've we've reduced those ecosystems into commodities and discarded with the rest sorry it's not my interview it's your interview no no no, just... no. It's, it's, uh, you know it's an interesting questions about uh, you know propaganda so i'm concerned i think that this focus of carbon is most probably orchestrated. This is mm-hmm. not like what people would feel. But I think that probably people who orchestrated it are not as bad as the loggers. And probably mm-hmm. they are even more powerful. So while I'm now talking to you, I hope that they will hear me and they will understand that whatever they want about copper politically, you know, tax Russia such that we are, you know, as poor as we always used to be. Do it. Do it. Yeah. But if you really care about, like, planet, what has to be urgently done is to stop disturbing, stop exploiting, stop eliminating forests. Just stop it immediately. And the situation will stop deteriorating. It won't immediately heal, but it uh, won't uh, worsen any longer. So given the whole planet is one big ecosystem, of the micro-ecosystems that exist, would you say forests are our number one priority? They are the most important thing. Because, you know, there's other scientists that are like, you know, talking about uh, the ocean and how that's the one that we need to save. And this, you know, everybody has their own niche. Uh, The ocean is extremely important and that we are still alive is due to the ocean Hmm. because we disturbed it less and why less because we don't consume primary productivity you know that the ocean there is no no trees as you know so there are no loggers there and fish are very uh they consume uh, the energy flow through fish is very small so we basically, right. we didn't destroy the ocean as much as we do for So in terms of conservation, preservation, protection, priority, forests are number one. For sure, for sure. Fortunately, we are unable to destroy the ocean. Unable, because we cannot take so much. From there is nothing there, only flows. And we like mass, you know, there is mm-hmm. no mass there. Mm-hmm. All the mm-hmm. energy flows. So the mm-hmm. ocean is very wise. Uh, these four billion of small, very small creatures, they know how to uh, overlive this stupid big animal. <laughs> <Evade. laughs> Come and go, yeah. And yet, and yet, um, I interviewed eco-journalist and fish expert uh, Paul Greenberg last week and he was talking about the fact that you know 
people are really crazy about renewable energy and think renewable energy is the answer to the world's problems. And he's saying, well, you know, with the amount of space that wind farms need, you know, we're looking to the oceans. We want to put the wind turbines in the oceans and da da da. He said, the problem is that, you know, we're having to disturb the seabed in order to put those wind turbines in the seabed. And then we're having to run cable all the way along the seabed back to land so that the energy uh, can get back to land. And he said, nobody is studying the effect on the sea. Nobody is doing the life cycle analysis of what impact this is going to have because people are too scared. They're too scared that it's not going to be the answer because they think we're running out of answers. He said, but we need to. We, it's crucial that we understand the impact that this is going to have on the sea. And as you're saying, because the sea is kind of one of the last places where we haven't been able to screw it up so much. And it would be awful, simply awful, if one of our you know, proposed solutions, if the uh, side effect happened to be screwing up the sea. Fortunately, I think that this project won't uh, won't uh, be uh, with wind turbines. No, they will sooner uh, make uh, the Sahara covered with uh, photovoltaics. Yeah, yeah. So it uh, it won't be good either for the climate, but uh, anyway, it will be better, of course. In the ocean, it is too complicated. We don't live in water; we are terrestrial animals. Oh my gosh, Anastasia, I'm aware of the time. Your your research is amazing. Oh, okay, but I, I doubt that we are making a good interview, you know, because it's a very complex topic, so I'm not sure that you will be able to cut something. Why? Very meaningful. I mean, it is too diverse. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. This podcast is called Planet Critical. It's about introducing people to, you know, things yeah. that we need to be aware of and maybe solutions. Honestly, it's been, it's been a really, really good interview. Okay, yeah. And then my final question is, who would you like to platform? Uh, you know, uh, we have a, a friend politician in Russia, the chair of the public council at the forestry ministry. And he is really promoting this idea of saving natural forests. So we work together. Probably it would be a very different touch, you know. Also from Russia, also because he will be uh, have to be politically correct, but it could be it could be interesting. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, because he's a very he's a clever uh, guy, and uh, you could like. Great, Anastasia, thank you so much. Thank you. I would like to talk more, but we must hurry to take a bus. So I would have loved to speak more to you. Maybe another time. But take care. You are. Handling so so difficult questions, so you don't aren't you afraid that they will somehow press you, these evil people? So I have the the naivety and the good fortune of being British. My boss uh, was on Interpol's Most Wanted, and uh, she was followed. Attempts were made on her life because of the things that she was writing about these evil characters. So uh, it's not something that I think I have the time to think about. Um, <laughs> telling the truth is the most important thing. Like those ants. Okay. So we are running now, okay? <laughs> Go. I hope you catch your bus. If you want to learn more about Anastasia's work, I've put links to some of her key research over at planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you like this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription over at planetcritical.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.